listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. So one of our Sangha members uh, this last week, he came up to me, and this is a guy I've known for 30 years probably. He said, uh, I love how you don't shy away from all the pain. You know, that this is hard work, that this is, this is not all about, you know, bliss. And uh, I kind of smiled at him and realized, <clears throat> pardon my voice, by the way, um, that, yeah, that's really kind of what tends to attract us to this work, is that something is not quite right, that something is amiss, that something is misfiring, that we don't feel like we're all here, we don't feel like we've been able to embody this human space of ours in a way that is congruent with our heart's deepest longing. Does, that, does this make sense? That this is usually what brings us into spiritual work, and that's, that's no surprise. If you think about it, uh, people uh, quite often uh, who practice um, you know, most diligently are really feeling like they're at the end of their rope. And that's fine. Welcome that. What an amazing gift when we can find ourselves, whether it's a major crisis or something that's kind of just creeping along, Every one of us in this room, every one of us in this town, this state, this country, this earth has heartache. Every one of us. If you don't have heartache, you are probably a computer, a Vulcan. I don't know. I mean, you have, yeah, whatever. It's like you, if there is no heartache there, how deep can you really be? Those of us that have experienced the crushing blows of life are the ones that tend to be able to hear the magic in Mozart. The blessing of an iris that's just at the perfect point of its bloom. So, while I, <laughs> my intention is not to like, you know, bring up all the worst aspects of life and say, yeah, it sucks, huh? You know, that, that is not, that's not where I'm going with this. But what I am trying to suggest is that every single one of those challenges, every single one of those dark nights offer you freedom. Every one of them. Every one of them is a gift. Every one of them is an invitation to live more deeply, more completely, more fully, more presently with exactly what is going on. <laughs> and in its own way, there's something so ordinary about that. It's so, or, I mean, literally what this work, this meditative work, this, this uh, teaching points to is it points to each of us how we can actually become truly, madly, and deeply ordinary. 
that we can somehow develop the courage, somehow develop the courage that we do not have to be anything fancy or special, even though Fred Rogers told us that's exactly what we needed to be. Actually, he didn't. He said, you are special. He didn't say you need to be anything other than what you are, did he? Apologies, Fred. That's really powerful. It's powerful for a kid to hear. It's powerful for an adult to hear. You don't need to do anything. As a matter of fact, the less you do to augment, adjust, enhance, or support your image of what it means to be you, the more you actually ends up showing up, the more beauty there actually is. And this full embrace of ordinariness ultimately is extraordinary. One of the things they said about my teacher's teacher, uh, Suzuki Roshi, um, was that there, uh, the, the most miraculous thing about him was that there was nothing extra. I always loved that line, nothing extra. He was just a man, you know? So much just a man that he fundamentally altered the course of spiritual work in the United States. In the world, for that matter. I mean, the ripples from that man's pebble are just are amazing. And every one of us has that chance. In fact, I would say that the ripples that each of you have left in this life are pretty amazing. And we can attach all sorts of meaning to them and then get egoically bound in our stories of how great we are. Or we can just sink to the bottom and love the fact that it happened. That we don't have to do anything extra. In fact, in the non-doing is where the extraordinary nature of who and what we really are begins to show up in miraculous ways, spontaneously. We're no longer doing anything. The universe is doing its own dance through us. And this has a radical impact on the world. This has a radical impact just on our relationships. It has a radical impact on the relationships we have externally and on the relationship we have with ourselves internally. We start dropping away the personal and start recognizing this vast, beautiful, effulgent, impersonal nature. We start seeing that we are all one and simultaneously that we are many. And in between that one and the many, we get to live a life. Pretty cool, huh? So continuing on with this idea of the extraordinariness in the ordinary. Um, if we can become comfortable with that, if we can become comfortable with our ordinariness, uh, 
we're on the path. When we are uh, striving for um, something exceptional, we can get lost in clinging. And this is actually what will put like a, a, a plug in the, uh, in the tub of awakening. This is, it's a weird metaphor. But <laughs> plug in the tub of awakening. What the <laughs> So let's just assume that awakening is like a tub. I'm going to stick with this, okay? So just stick with me. If awakening is like a tub and um, uh, it's, it's draining, we're looking for emptiness, essentially. We're waiting for the tub to drain, Yeah. And what will prevent that emptiness from realizing itself is when there's clinging. It's like it just stops the tub. Okay, stops the tub from draining. Yeah, that did work. Okay. Um, I mean, what would that mean? What would that mean if you were just normal? If you were a plain bagel, as one of my friends has said, she's repeated over and over and over again since we were in high school together. She says, I am not interested in being a plain bagel. And she still will use this, this metaphor. And it, it cracks me up every time because if she would just be okay with being a plain bagel, she would be the coolest bagel around. And as a result, she's at war with her own bagelness. <laughs> Oi. <laughs> but it's, uh, it's something really quite powerful to think about. You know, we operate under this deluded sense that we are somehow separate. When in fact we are all awakened space. We are all made up of the same stuff. There's variance to be sure. And different variants will resonate with other variants differently. This is why we fall in love. This is why we split up. This is why we are attracted to certain human beings and not so attracted to others. It doesn't take away our humanity if we choose not to affiliate so closely with people who we feel are different from, from us. But the differences are ultimately so superficial and, paradoxically, exploring those differences, studying them, reveals the commonality that we all share. And the same goes for ourselves. When we begin to study what makes us tick and what gets in the way of efficient rhythmic ticking, we start to immediately uncover what's truly great in us. That in fact, awakening, enlightenment, is located within and around and through our delusion of separateness. Our alienation, our fear, our pain, is waiting for us to explore it. It's waiting to be explored. When we do, when we give our full mindful attention 
to our pain, to our fear, to our anxiety, to whatever it happens to be, and we don't run away, we're given the opportunity to uncover what's true, real, helpful, beautiful, and good within us. And the major gift is that we see that it's not only local, it's non-local. It's everywhere, in every being, even those individuals we don't resonate with so much. This last, uh, last weekend I was at, um, um, on a, well, I don't know what you call it, personal retreat, I guess. Uh, I was given the, the night off by the wife. Actually, it was more get out was kind of the deal, but uh, I'm teasing. It wasn't that. It wasn't. That. It was really quite a generous thing on her part. Um, and I was having this discussion with a, a person that I had uh, sat with in retreat um, some years back, and she was talking about um, you know this stage, you know uh, her work in the practice. Uh, of Zen, and she was mentioning how, you know, I've really, I spent all this time considering how important truth is, and that I came to my spiritual work really wanting to uncover what truth was, which totally resonated with me, because that's exactly kind of why I got into it, that and a mixture of greed for the truth, I wanted, I wanted truth, and I was greedy about it, and, um, and she said, and I, I've come to realize it, it truth isn't nearly as important as being helpful. In other words, when we ask the question, is it true or is it helpful? Which one is going to lead us to greater peace? Which one's going to be more helpful? In other words, when we start looking for truth and we cling to that, we can create righteousness. We can create conviction. We can create opinion. We can create all sorts of stuff can become egoically tapped into. It's not to say that truth isn't something that we should be looking for. Of course we should. But it offers up a tremendous number of handles onto which an individual, an ego specifically, can grasp. Helpfulness can too. There are some people that you may know that are so hell-bent on being helpful that they forget to help themselves. And as a result, their offerings are perpetually half-assed. You ever met anybody like this who's like so busy, you know, externalizing everything that they do, they're so busy trying to help everybody else that they ignore themselves in the process. Therefore, every single one of their offerings becomes partial. And this work is about a reclamation of wholeness. It's about showing up totally to your life, fearlessly. Whatever is shaking you, whatever is haranguing you, whatever you are beating yourself with over the head, this work is about no longer running. It's about staying put. It's about turning around and meeting whatever it is that haunts you and accepting the ghost and learning to forgive it and in the process forgiving yourself.
Every one of us has this at our disposal. Right, it's right in front of us all the time. Maybe we feel like we're, we're just getting old. Maybe we feel like we have a past that just isn't something we're particularly proud of or the things that we wish we had done differently. Maybe we have future stuff that's coming up that we're really afraid of. Maybe, maybe we have relationships that aren't working out. Maybe we have places where we tend to hide and we'd rather be more out there. You know, it can be big, it can be small, whatever. We have exactly what we need to work with, every one of us. So it's right here. Dogen, the uh, uh, Dogen Zenji is the, the uh, uh, 12th century um, Japanese uh, Zen master. He said, if you cannot find the truth where you are, where do you expect to find it? Truth is not far away. It is ever present. It is not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. Same applies with the word helpfulness. I'll say it now with the word helpfulness. If you cannot find helpfulness where you are, where do you expect to find it? Helpfulness is not far away. It is ever present. It is not something to be attained since not one of your steps leads away from it. What is this helpfulness? It's merely being fully here. Fully here. It's recognizing that even in our delusion, enlightenment awaits. Freedom is there. It awaits for us to uncover it. That it's not separate. That truth is not separate. That you can't move away from truth. You can do things to kind of obfuscate it and hide it, you know. Like my daughter, whenever I'm wearing sunglasses, does this. She, she will grab, it's, it's the perfect grab because she'll go with her fingers behind the, the lenses here and then thumbs and she'll do this on them. <laughs> and so she did this the other day when she had, uh, she got into my chapstick and I didn't realize this, but she, she grasps onto the, grasp, <laughs> onto the lenses and does this and I had just this horrific schmutz all over, you know. But that, that can happen in our spiritual work. We can, things can get clouded. Okay? But the light of truth is there. The light is always there. It never picks and chooses what it will shine on or shine through. So, I guess what I wanted to kind of lean into here a little bit is this idea that I touch on every once in a while about how you've got to kind of, it's not enough to just say, well, the truth is here. Cool. You have to kind of want it. You have to kind of want to uncover this radiance. You have to kind of want to in order to have the strength and the fearlessness necessary to keep wiping off that lampshade, to let that light through. So, if our practice, if our stillness, if our meditation is going to support an awakening to what we've always been, to that nothing extra quality of being, we have to have a little bit of fire there. We have to, we have to, we have to dig. 
And some of you may be sitting every day. You may be sitting every day, uh, maybe very diligent and so forth about the, the actual practice itself, but what's your attitude like? It's not enough just to have the practice. You have to have kind of this attitude to support it. It acts as kind of a container, kind of like Sangha acts, or group, acts as a container for this teaching. And so I want to I, I encourage that. Um, it doesn't mean you have to, you know, <laughs> I mean, I wish it was this easy to, you know, accept the Buddha as your personal savior so that you can be saved. It just doesn't work that way. Okay? I would argue that it's much deeper than that. And this isn't to take anything away from anybody who believes that accepting any particular savior as their personal one will, will free them. Or that, you know, the Talmud or the Torah or the Upanishads actually have all the, the, the entire truth there. If you believe that, that's just fine. What I'm saying is, no matter what your tradition is, coupling a stillness practice, coupling meditation with kind of a, an oomph speeds things up. If there's too much oomph, it will slow things down. Because the uh, pressure, that, that lean, actually can become an attachment. So we have to learn how to kind of create balance. And some of you may have a hard enough time doing this in your normal life anyway. Start with your meditation practice since it's so simple. It is nothing other than sitting down and shutting up. Sit still, shut up. That's it. Now, try to balance that. Okay? So... What you'll find is, once you, start, uh, once you start embracing this openly, is that you will start to see that your life becomes indeed a meditation. That we have formal meditation where we actually you know, might plop ourselves down on our meditation cushion or on our chair or worst of all, in bed uh, after you hit the snooze alarm. No, this is meditation. Trust me. You know, that happens. A lot of people try that one out. It doesn't work very well. I encourage you to get your butt out of bed. <laughs> Uh, and sit. What we start seeing is that that formal meditation practice that we're doing um, actually has this byproduct of informal meditative awareness that happens throughout the day. That you can suddenly begin mindfully going about emails, although it's tough. You can mindfully go through your, you know, however many emails you get in a day, emptying that inbox. You can mindfully go through a meeting, maybe a meeting that isn't so pleasant, a discussion. You can begin to bring this awareness into, this meditative awareness, into your day-to-day. And that's when we begin to integrate the teaching into life. And peace is available here. So when we show up to life in that way, when we start accepting what is, when we start participating at that level, what happens is the ego's grip on our pain and the ego's grip on fear as ways of helping it maintain its position of management in our psyche begins to loosen. And how this works is a mystery. 
and I don't really care. <laughs> but if we begin to bring this openness, this relaxed kind of presence, if we begin presencing ourselves, our pain and our fear begin to not necessarily diminish, but our relationship to them changes, once again, so significantly that they no longer color our world in the same way. And I would guess that most people would love for that to unfold in their lives. It's available. It's waiting. Everything in you that clings is hoping for this realization to happen. It takes so much more energy to hang on to something than it does to let it go. Yet we hang on because the misery is so much more familiar than the mystery. When the mystery begins to show up, our entire life becomes a question. And what's really cool about questions is, that especially these types of deep spiritual questions, is they're not really looking for answers as much as they're looking to be thrown out there. One of my favorite uh, mystics of all time is a mid-20th century, um, actually I guess it was 60, he died I think in 81, and really kind of hit uh, popularity in the 70s. His name is Nizargada de Maharaj. Try saying that after a few beers. Um, anyway, Nizargada de Maharaj was, uh, he sold um, cigarettes in a little shop, a little stand. And, uh, uh, you know, so he was totally addicted to cigarettes, ended up dying of cancer and so forth. And you think, no, no mystic would have cigarettes. He would be drinking herbal tea. Uh, no. I'm going to just disabuse you of the fact that there are plenty of enlightened people who have done some really horrible things to their bodies over time, uh, Nizargadatta being one of them. But he just was, uh, uh, he would have these satsangs, you know, these, these meetings, um, and just the, the brilliance and genius would come out of this guy. And uh, one of my favorite quotes is, when I see that I am nothing, he says, when I see that I am nothing, that is wisdom. When I see that I am everything, that is love. And in between these two, my life flows. Our ability to surf in between this singularity and this multitude is our life. Some of you will begin to do it consciously. And that moment, when we begin to live our life in between these two spaces of love and wisdom, seeing that we are utterly unified and utterly singular, part of the deep singularity, and that we are also part of the multitude, part of the many. When we can do that, when we can live in that space, we become not only truth itself, but we are automatically helpful. You can't help but be helpful. 
in that space. You see that everyone is you and that you are everyone. You see the one and the many as being ultimately the same. So, I don't know that there's necessarily, um, I mean, I wish there was like pixie dust we could throw on people and they would suddenly get this. It's unfortunately not something that we get. It's something that kind of shows up as we meditate. Some of you may have even experienced some openings. As you meditate, you start you know, recognizing there's a tremendous amount of space between arising thoughts. That openness right there, that is the red carpet. Okay? That is the offering. We can begin to inhabit, oddly, that space more and more and more as we are exposed to it more and more and more. And it is, it is exposed to us as us when we sit still. In this stillness, you start to recognize that that stage of mind on which the ego is playing itself out reading every script in the book, trying to be as convincing as it can, we start to see that it's illusory. We start to see that there's more. It's not that what the ego is doing is wrong or that it's false. It's that it's so incomplete that it cannot be held as the total truth. Every one of you can witness your experience right now. This awareness that something's happening, that some bald guy up in the front is chattering, and you may be paying attention or you may not be, but that you're aware that it's happening. That you're aware of the palms of your hands in this very moment. That awareness right there is always there. And we begin to live our lives with that being a much more, taking on a much more central place in our consciousness we start recognizing that there's a lot less to cling to. It's just a stage play, for Christ's sake, for Buddha's sake, for Moses, you get the idea. <laughs> so when we start kind of seeing through it, we start seeing that it ain't so important. Suddenly, um, I mean, to, to use the cliche from that brilliant little book, um, we start seeing it's all small stuff. We can live much more fully, much more meaningfully when we start recognizing that we don't need to get diminished by anything or anyone. It just isn't, it doesn't even offer itself as a, you know, possibility because we're no longer really identifying with the self we become kind of this open conscious expression of the universe in action spirit dancing in every moment and I'm not trying to make that sound like too ethereal or anything it's just kind of is what happens when we begin to get still seriously and we have a little fire behind it we begin to recognize the essence of that fire is who, in fact, we are. And that light 
is something that we always offer. So get going. <laughs> <laughs> Questions? Hi. You were talking about uh, bringing the spiritual practice to dear life. Since I have been through this path, I have noticed that my mind is a complete corrupt, to be honest with you. And it's like a corrupted file on the computer? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and um, somehow, sometimes I go through the day to day life and I notice my catch myself. I'm judging. I catch myself aversion, grasping, and it gets frustrating. It makes me think: Have I always been like this, or am I becoming like that, or am I noticing it more? It's very confusing. It's really good. Okay, ready? But life is makes life more difficult for me. Okay, well let's let's let, let me let me unpack it and see if see if this can be helpful because what you're talking about is something that's really quite. It's supposed to happen. The more we get into spiritual work, the more aware we become. Oftentimes, the more pained we get. We become more aware of pain that we didn't have, but then we recognize, oh my God, it's always been there. It's like, it's exactly what somebody who goes through sobriety can experience. They're able to kind of anesthetize themselves, numb themselves from all these things, and suddenly they're sober and they're like, oh, right? So most of us will find as we begin our path and we begin to take it much more seriously and we put a little fire in there that once the light starts shining, stuff is showing up that we didn't expect to see. Okay? So what you just told me was that you, you were aware of yourself being more judgmental. You're aware of yourself being, right? And, and your ego now has told you, it's come right through the back door and said, up, oh, you're a corrupted file. When in fact you are just becoming more aware. I would argue it's working, okay? It's not necessarily comfortable, but it's working. What is it that's aware of all this stuff? It's not my ego. No, because the ego is what, you, we can be aware of your ego, can't we? Yeah. You can be aware of your ego. So what's that you that's aware of the ego? Not the ego. Consciousness. Uh-huh, right, okay? So what I would suggest you do is become very patient with that. And instead of letting the ego in through the back door that offers up judgment, says, oh, this sucks. Instead, just say, huh, isn't this interesting? That takes the ego out of it, doesn't it? Huh, isn't this interesting? Or another word I love using is, wow, huh. Try that. And go easy on yourself, okay? And the thing that's going to be going easy on yourself is not yourself. It's something bigger. Chew on that. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? Yes. What is the origin of emotions? You ready? The origin of emotion. What is the origin of emotion? I have no idea, but I can give you a guess. 
ready for my guess? Um, the origin of emotion, if you look at the word uh, in Latin, emovere means to disturb. So emotions are actually uh, disturbances that we feel in our bodies originating in thought. So in other words, I will feel an emotion when a thought, I always kind of look at it this way, when a thought is actually so heavy that it will fall into my body. Okay? And it creates then uh, a vibration, a variance. Right? Okay? So, for instance, uh, and that can go positive or negative, Sandy. Either way. Um, if, we have, if we have a dark thought, a dark memory, what it tends to do is like hit us bodily. And that's where we feel emotion. Emotion is not thought. Emotion is thought resonating with the physical being. All right? Now, once we begin to explore that and we begin to watch our thoughts and we begin to watch our bodies, the body becomes an experience, the mind becomes an experience, but there is something that miraculously is bigger than the experience. There's something that's aware of the experience. And that something that's aware of the experience is this awareness that I've kind of been talking about, this witness. And that witness is utterly, completely, and totally free. And when we begin to live from that place of witnessing awareness, we're no longer identified with those thoughts or those feelings. They take on much less of a valence, so to speak. Their energetic valence is less. It can, I mean, it can't help but, but you know, diminish. And so what happens then? Well, we are not only recognizing truth, but we are also able to become more helpful to ourselves and to others in the process. And that's, that's what meditation shows us. But that's just a guess. <laughs> yeah? I have a question kind of on yeah. top of that yeah. last explanation. That I know that um, I've worked with my thoughts and my emotions over you know, decades. Mm-hmm. And it feels like I'm getting to a point where I'm almost emotionless. Uh-huh. And it almost feels not right. Like, I don't know if it's like there's a point where you, it's almost like you don't care. Mm -hmm. Do you know what I mean? Like, can you... Sounds like an indifference. Yeah. Yeah, I would say indifference. Is is there a danger of going too far in that, you know, shutting down maybe, or... Well, that's what I, I was just going to say. What I would look for is actually, I'd get, if I were you, I'd get really curious about what led to the indifference arising um, out, uh, you know, from a place where you could actually feel to a place where you're not feeling. Typically, not feeling comes as a defense mechanization of our egos, you know. And that's that's not to say. I mean, there's the only thing worse than indifference is somebody who's like all over the map emotionally when they're so. I mean, it's like, eh, you know, there's there's uh, there's no structure. You have to believe it or not. You have to avail yourself to structure. You have to make yourself available to structure in order to see beyond the structure. Okay? Um, you, I mean, you can find people who are totally blissed out in the middle of the street um, who are actually dealing with no ego at all. But it's not that they're enlightened. It's that they're psychotic. Right? So, and you don't want to make that error. Um, 
you don't want to live that one out. My recommendation is, like I said, explore the roots of the indifference. Is it that you are actually indifferent? Or is it that you're calming down? Is it that you are giving much less energy to the energy? You know what I mean? Much less mental energy to the physical feeling. Are you disidentifying, perhaps, a little bit more with what's going on in your thoughts or what's going on in your body? If that disidentification is going on, and by the way, when I say disidentification, I'm not saying like you are, you are dissociating. I'm saying that you are no longer caught by the hooks. That's actually really quite beautiful. I've never seen awakening unfold in an individual where it didn't start with actually them becoming much more raw at first. And then as they, their stillness practice has supported actually kind of this fearless facing of rawness and they kind of work through it just like you would work through teenage, you know, and even, but it doesn't take that long typically, you know, and then they kind of, it's not that they toughen up, but they actually become much more accepting. And in that accepting-ness of all the stuff that's going on, they are able to kind of actually become bigger. In their, in their expanse. I hope that makes sense. I have no idea what I just said, but I think <laughs> that happens sometimes. I'll just start going and... <laughs> um, so it's not that you get cured of your indifference, but that you can actually look at it and study it deeply. Curious about it. Yeah. Yeah. Get really curious about it. That takes the ego out of it, too. And report back, please. Yes? I just had this uh, question regarding yeah. ego. Mm-hmm. Um, is the storylines that we run in our mind and play out as ourselves every day, is, that's the same thing as ego? Is that? Yeah, ego's the performer. Okay. Ego's the one on stage reading the script. Okay. In my model. But, but you can, I mean, there are all sorts of different, I mean, and by no means is mine flawless. Okay, I'm just saying that that's always been kind of helpful. I found kind of a helpful metaphor uh, to explore uh, and to help us, each one of us, study the self. The self, the mind, the ego, I can use interchangeably. Okay? The big self is what watches or the witness. So once we stop thinking that we have to be certain things and act certain ways and please certain people and blah, 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 then we're just ourselves and the ego just sort of disappears? No. Um, what happens is every one of those things you were just describing, how you're supposed to be for certain people and stuff like that, every one of those is a script that e- ego has authored. Okay. And it's also going to deliver the monologue. Hmm. Right? So what you do is when you start watching the ego go through this, and you're in the audience, you watch it do its thing, right? It's given its performance, looking for the Oscar, Okay, or except it's a stage play, so it's a Tony. Okay, so, so he goes looking for the Tony. You know, this is it's going to deliver here. You're in the audience, and hopefully, you've created this spacious presence through your meditation practice that allows you to go. Good one, right? And then the ego is up there. You know, with this just, I mean, it's doing Denzel, you know, or it's Olivier or, you know. 
Nathan Lane. Okay? Nathan Lane. <laughs> Just delivering, delivering, and it suddenly recognizes, damn it, I've been seen. You know? I've been exposed. I, it can't compete. The ego cannot compete with like, the genuine the vastness of the big self for the witness. It can't. I mean, it's held. The big self, the, the witness, holds it. It's within. Okay? Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. We have time for Yeah. Go ahead, Michelle. So on the heels of that, so um, some, I'm getting more skillful at recognizing the performer, re- realizing which play I'm sitting in the theater for. Like, oh, <laughs> there's that one, and there's this one, and there's that one. But there's one that um, it's about this practice that I really, I'm starting to be suspicious of, but I just really, Good. it's so compelling, it's so believable, and it's very lucid, like it feeds into everything. And, it's, and, it, and it says something like, it has a lot of words, but basically it says, I know what will happen. I, I know what happens when you meditate. No, no, no. I know what happens after 30 minutes. I know after three years. I know after 10 years. I even know what enlightenment feels like. Right, right. <laughs> so we don't need to do this. Right. We read a book on it. Right. And I saw somebody who was enlightened once. Right. So, <laughs> so we're, we're set. <laughs> right. We're good. We're good. Check, please. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> right. I'd like an espresso and a cupcake now. Exactly. Like exactly. Yeah. So, good. And the reason why I'd say good is because what you've just done is you've illustrated beautifully the enlightened ego. Okay? The enlightened ego is only slightly more tolerable than an unenlightened ego. Okay? Depending on the attitude it brings to its day-to-day functioning. It can be much more annoying than an unenlightened ego if it decides it wants to teach. Okay? So the enlightened ego is not in the audience. It's actually walked downstage center and turned around with its heels right on the lip of the stage. And it starts watching itself. Judging itself. I already know what's going to happen. I've read that book. And there's a lot of I there. Okay? And a lot of us there. A lot of me, mine, you, and yours. And you can always smell it by the amount of resistance there is. In awakening, there's no resistance to anything. All right? And so what we begin to uncover then is this, our attachment to doubt, our attachment to certitude, our attachment to I already know, or there's no flipping way. Right? All of that is ego. Watch that. And now we're talking about an awakened mind as opposed to a mind that thinks it's awake. And report back. Okay. Okay. But if you don't, I mean, all kidding aside, one of the cool things that everyone in this room should, should really begin to look at is, is is how much they suspect this isn't going to work, how much they suspect that this is wrong. That's where the teaching takes off. Otherwise, you're, you know, lemmings. The cool thing about this style of spiritual work is that it unfolds in dialogue. 
not because of me, I'm not going to give you jack. Okay? I, seriously, I will not be able to give you a thing. You're going to have to take it. Okay? And you take it by questioning. So you question the teacher, you question the teaching, you question, you question everything. And th those questions, first, their orientation can be kind of suspect and negative. And pretty soon what happens is they start becoming deeply informative at a cellular level. And that's where magic starts to happen. You know, not only for you, but for what's not you. That you've always thought was you. And vice versa. Okay? Thank you for the question. I appreciate it. And thank every one of you for being here. Mm -hmm.